The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 5 and verse 32, the 32nd verse in the 5th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Let me read from verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. We interrupt our studies in the, uh, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians because it seems to me to be of very great importance at a time such as this particularly that we should all be clear as Christian people as to what we mean by Whit Sunday what it represents in the history of the church and its message, therefore, for the church at this present hour. And uh, we do so this morning in terms of this statement here in this 32nd verse of the fifth chapter of this book of the Acts of the Apostles. The immediate context is not of vital importance in the elucidation of the particular statement. The apostles uh, had been on trial once more for preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They had been arrested more than once and they had been prohibited severely to preach any more or to do anything in the name of this Jesus. And here we are given the reply of Peter and the other apostles. They say we ought to obey God rather than men. And then they proceed to state the basic simple facts of the Christian faith. And then they had this most important statement that we are looking at. They said, now, we are witnesses of these things. That God raised up uh, Jesus and how they had slain him and hanged him on a tree. And how God had exalted him with his right hand. They say, we are witnesses of these things. And then this most extraordinary phrase. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Very well. Here you see these men preaching soon after that great and notable event which happened on the day of Pentecost, that account of which is recorded there in that second chapter. And they are referring, of course, partly to that in what they say here. What then are we reminded of? Well, the first thing is, of course, that this is a fact. This uh, is an event in history. This is something that literally and actually happened. We can never repeat that too frequently. Christianity is not primarily a teaching. It's not a philosophy. It is a teaching which is based upon facts. The teaching is nothing but an explanation of the facts. We are saved not by the teaching. We are saved by what God has actually done for us men and for our salvation. 
That is why the tedium that we sang just now is so important for us. It reminds us of the events and of the facts. No teaching could save men. Something had to be done. And something has been done. And we're reminded, I say, that what happened on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem is one of that great series of events, of facts, in this story of salvation. You remember there how those people at Jerusalem, hearing these uh, disciples speaking in different languages, uh, said uh, the thing that astounded them was that we hear them speak, they said, in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. That's it. The wonderful works of God. That's what Christianity is. It is what has come into being as the result of the wonderful works and actions of God. And the last in that great series of actions was what took place in, at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Suddenly, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit was poured forth upon those people in the upper room. Now this, I say, is an actual fact. It is a literal event and happening. There they were gathered together in that room, and suddenly there was a sound of a rushing mighty wind. Now this is not imagination. This is not just a pictorial way of representing something. That literally happened. The place was filled with this sound, and then there descended the cloven tongues as a fire upon the head of every single one of the company in the upper room, and they began to speak with other tongues. Now, my dear friends, it's so vital we should remember this, because it is quite certain we would not be here in this chapel at this moment if that had not literally happened. There would never have been a Christian church. There would have been no message to preach. This, then, I say, is the first thing which we must take a firm hold of. And as I'm saying, never was it more important that we should do so than at this present time. We worship a God who acts, who intervenes, who does things. I would certainly not be in this pulpit if I felt that the Christian church were in the hands of men, any men. If I felt that the future of the church were in my hands, I say I'd never be in a pulpit at all. I would be of all men the most pessimistic. No, no. The thing we are reminded of is this, that this is God's plan and God's purpose. God has planned before the foundation of the world the salvation of his people, and he's going to perform it. That's the great message of the Bible. You see these long intervals when God seemed to have forgotten his own purpose, forgotten his own people. The enemy is loud and arrogant and proud. Nothing happens. Everything's going wrong. And suddenly God arises and goes on with the plan. Now, this great event, I say, on the day of Pentecost is just a reminder of all this. This is the thing, you see, that finally put heart and power and vigor into the testimony of those crestfallen disciples. And thank God that we can meet therefore on such a day and remind ourselves of this notable event, that we are in the hands of God and that at any time when it is pleasing to him in his sovereign will, he can again shed forth his spirit and revive his work and lift up his own people and send them out to do mighty deeds and achieve great conquests in the name of his dear son. Thank God, I say, for Whit Sunday. Thank God for the facts and the events 
on which our faith is based. And Christian people, let us never forget the facts. Let us hold firmly to them. That's why we thank God for bread and wine. We are so ready to philosophize that death is everything else. But here we are reminded that he was nailed to a tree, his body was broken, his blood was shed. Facts! Let's hold on to the facts. But now we are concerned to understand truly the meaning of the fact. What was it exactly that happened? What is this teaching concerning the Holy Ghost, which we have in the New Testament? Now, here I say it is of great importance that we should be clear, because, as you know, in the long history of the Church, there have been so many false and wrong notions and ideas and teachings with respect to the work of the Holy Spirit and the true doctrine concerning the Holy Spirit. This is to me a very tragic thing. There have been two main tendencies with regard to this matter. There have been some who have exaggerated the teaching concerning the Holy Spirit. And they've gone to excesses. And the tragedy is that because they have done that, the effect has been upon the others very often to make them neglect the doctrine of the Holy Spirit altogether. It's so difficult to arrive at a balance, isn't it, with these matters. There are fanatical people, people who talk about nothing but the Holy Spirit. And I say they become guilty of excesses in so many different ways. Then the others looking on and seeing how obviously wrong that is, become so frightened and so alarmed that they go right over to the other side. And you never hear them mentioning the Holy Spirit at all. He seems to have dropped out of their theology almost. We are such creatures of reactions. And thus we go from one extreme right over to the other. Well, the danger is still with us. Still with us. There are people who are still guilty of fanaticism and of confusion with regard to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and who bring the entire teaching into disrepute. And on the other hand, I say there are those who practically never speak of him at all and who are not concerned about revival because they're afraid of these excesses. Very well, let's see what the scripture teaches us about this whole matter. And here it seems to me it is put before us in a very convenient way. The first thing we read is this, that the Holy Ghost is in his function primarily and essentially a witness. I don't stay this morning with the doctrine of the person of the Spirit, there's no time for that. I'm assuming that we all agree that the Holy Spirit is a person and not, not merely an influence. He is the third person in the Blessed Holy Trinity. But we are concerned here with his work, his function, in this matter of salvation. And here is the first thing. He's a witness. We are witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost. Now, here surely is the key to a true scriptural balanced view of the work of the Holy Spirit. He is a witness, yes, and he is a witness together with, so is also together with, the apostles. We are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost. Now, here is a very great and important principle. The work and function of the Holy Ghost, in other words, must never be taken on its own. 
must never be isolated. It must always be taken in connection with this other witness. Now here, of course, Peter and the apostles put it in terms of their own words and teaching at that, at that very time. Peter said, we are witnesses. That's the meaning of our preaching. That's why we work these miracles. We are witnesses of these things. We saw them. We are testifying as to their reality and the truth uh, concerning them. Uh, therefore, they said, we are, we are teaching these things of which we are witnesses. Now, the Holy Ghost is a witness with us of these self-same things. What is the position now, then? Well, the position now is this. The apostles are not here. Well, where is that aspect of the witness, you say? The answer is in this word, in this book. This, you see, is the witness of the apostles. That was, as you remember, the determining factor in the formation of the New Testament canon. The Holy Spirit was guiding the early church in the formation of this canon. There were many books suggested to them and offered to them. They excluded a large number, and they decided to incorporate these only. What was their ultimate test? Well, the ultimate, ultimate test was the test of apostolicity, which means this, that it had to be established beyond any doubt whatsoever that these books were either written by an apostle or else could be directly traced to an apostle. Nothing else was admitted at all. However good it might be, however excellent the teaching, if it did not come up to this test of apostolicity, it was rejected. Very well, the New Testament is nothing but the witness and the testimony of the apostles to the truths of salvation, to the facts and the teaching. Here it is. We, said these men, are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. Now then, here I say is a very great and profound principle. And if the church had always remembered that, she would have avoided many a heresy and many an error. Most of the trouble has arisen through a separation of the Spirit and the Word, through the separation of the Spirit and the testimony of the apostles. Some have put their entire emphasis upon the Spirit. Others have put their exclusive emphasis upon the Word. Now, there's no more fascinating study than the study of these uh, two things. Let me give you just a hurried illustration to show you the kind of trouble that uh, arises when this uh, great principle is forgotten. The Quakers, people like the early Quakers in particular, were guilty, of course, of putting their whole emphasis upon the Spirit. That was the meaning of their teaching of the inner light. And they were not the only ones. There had been some fanatical sects even before them on the continent of Europe. You can read their story and of the fight of people like Luther and Calvin against them. These were people who said that they really didn't need the Word. They didn't need the Scriptures at all. They were being given direct revelations by the Spirit. This is no use coming to us and saying that that isn't taught in the Bible. They said, well, we are not interested. The Holy Spirit is in us. There is an inner light. We are being led into the truth. It's coming directly and immediately to us. 
So they didn't expand the scriptures, but they sat in silence and got their messages, as they said, and then they preached them. Now, that has always been a cause of great confusion. You see, such people claim that they are receiving a fresh revelation. The truth doesn't end with the scriptures, but that you can get fresh, additional, new revelations, that the Spirit alone is still operating apart from this other witness and testimony. And so, I say, you get the key to the understanding of all the fanatical sects that have troubled the life of the church. Because the history will tell you that they were not only wrong in that respect, but that, as is almost invariably the case, it led to moral failure. There was no standard by which you could uh, test them. If they claimed they'd got authority from God for everything they did and said, well, there was no court of appeal. And the result is that such sects generally ended in some moral confusion and some kind of shame. In any case, they've nearly all wandered far away from the scriptural teaching, so that some of them by now can scarcely be described as Christian at all. There's one so. Then there is another interesting phenomenon, and that is, of course, what you get in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Roman Catholic Church does not reject the testimony of the scripture, the word, the, the apostles. But it is still guilty of this same error of separating these two things. The position of the Roman church is, you know, that it accepts this teaching, but says that since then there has been further teaching. That the Holy Ghost is still giving his message directly. That the, that the revelation of truth did not end with the apostles, but it's still continuing. And so, you see, they teach papal infallibility. They teach the assumption of the Virgin Mary. They teach the Immaculate Conception and many other things which are not taught in the Scripture at all. But they're in no trouble. They say, oh, no, of course they're not in the Scripture. Uh, but uh, the Holy Ghost has revealed this to the church since then. There has been a fresh impartation of truth. Now that again violates what we are taught so clearly in this particular verse. These two witnesses must always go together. And whatever purports to be a revelation by the Holy Spirit which is not confirmed in this book must be rejected. Here is the apostolic witness and what the Holy Ghost does is to witness with the apostolic witness. And if you can't prove that a thing is a part of the apostolic witness, it must be utterly rejected. Now there, I say, is a very important principle for us always to be bearing in our minds. And then there's just one other group I must mention. And that is the group that more or less excludes the Holy Spirit. And is interested only in this word. And it comes to this word with a kind of rational mind and understanding. The operation of the Spirit is almost uh, entirely excluded. This has often happened in the history of the Church. And that is how you can have such a thing as a dead orthodoxy. There have been many such periods in the history of the Church when men have been absolutely orthodox, they've believed the word from cover to cover, but there has been no life whatsoever. Why? Well, they've excluded the witness of the Spirit. And they have regarded uh, the teaching of Christianity as just a kind of intellectual exposition of the propositions of this book. It's a reasoned argument, a logical statement of facts and of teachings. It's been absolutely orthodox, but completely dead. 
It's been right about the witness of the apostles, but it has forgotten the witness of the Holy Ghost. And of course, that is equally bad. Some of the driest, most arid periods in the history of the church of these have been those periods of a dead mechanical orthodoxy. Well, my friends, I can't stay with this this morning. I want to touch on general principles, but here is the first and the starting point. So is also word and spirit. God forbid we should ever divide them, separate them. God forbid that we should emphasize one only without the other, doesn't matter which of them. These two things work together, have been meant to work together, and we separate them, I say, only at the cost of a departure from the true Christian faith. There's the first point. Secondly, what is it to which the Holy Ghost witnesses? He is a witness, primarily in his operation. To what does he witness? And here again, you see, is a most important statement. Negatively, he doesn't witness to himself. Oh, how many have gone wrong there? Having understood that there is a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, they see nothing but this. And they talk about the Holy Spirit alone in and of himself, but that's wrong. He's a witness to something else. The Holy Ghost, my friends, never calls attention to himself alone. Indeed, we can go further. He never calls attention to himself as such. It is always in this context. So I say that if we are looking to the Holy Ghost alone and in isolation, we are again in error. Oh, look at it like this. He does not witness only to certain phenomena. Now this is where the fanatical sects go wrong always. You will find that they've got great emphasis on the Holy Spirit, yes, but they're always talking about phenomena. They're always talking about tongues or miracles or this or that, or direct leading and guidance. It's always the phenomena. That's the thing that interests them. And that is, you see, to be utterly opposed to the New Testament teaching concerning the witness of the Holy Ghost. He doesn't stop at the phenomena. There are phenomena I'm going to show you, but he never focuses his beam, as it were, upon them alone and leaves us just talking about phenomena and interested in phenomena. Now, there are books in which you can read of the story of fanaticism and you will find that that has always been its great characteristic. They've spent their time in talking to one another about what they felt or what they've seen, how suddenly a ball of fire appeared or how they suddenly had some great sensation going through their body as if a hot iron were pushed. That's the kind of thing to which they testify. And this is what establishes them as unusual Christians. Phenomena, excitement, and they talk about them. All the interest is there in the phenomena. I wish I'd got more time to develop this for this reason. This question of phenomena becomes always in revival one of the most acute problems. There has scarcely ever been a revival but that you've had certain phenomena, I believe, given by the Holy Ghost, yes. But men suddenly concentrate their attention on the phenomena. They forget the Holy Ghost and the one to whom he witnesses and they're looking at the phenomena and talking about them and seeking them. And so many a revival has led to trouble and has come to a kind of abortive end. Because this vital principle of the Word and the Spirit together and making sure as to what the Spirit testifies and witnesses unto has been forgotten. No, no, he doesn't call attention to himself. 
He doesn't call it attention to phenomena and mere experiences. Well, to what? Well, the word tells us. And we are his witnesses of what? Well, of these things. These things. And so is also the Holy Ghost a witness of what? Well, these things. These things. Here's the test, you see, as to whether the Spirit is working in us. I'm not interested in your experiences, in the marvelous things you may have seen or felt or heard. The question is, uh, has the Spirit been witnessing to you uh, to these things? What are they? Well, the Apostle has just been telling us what they are. They're about the Lord, you see. Yeah, here are the things that God, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. There, those are the things. You know, in saying all this, the apostles are just uh, repeating, of course, what our Lord himself had prophesied. Listen to this. In John 14, 26. Here's our Lord preaching, and this is what he says. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. That's what he's going to do. He's going to bring back to the remembrance the things that he had already said unto them. That's going to be his teaching. Not something new and strange, but these things which our Lord himself had been teaching. Then listen to it again in a still greater, a more explicit statement in a way, in chapter 16. I read verses 8 to 11. Here is our Lord prophesying of the coming of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, I've read many sermons on that and heard many sermons on it. And you know, sometimes they have uh, dealt with that statement in such a way as to deny our Lord's own teaching. They've dealt, of course, with the whole question of conviction and conversion. But listen to our Lord's exposition. See what he means by that. He will convict the world and reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin? How? Well, by showing the horrors of nightclubs or of, or of public houses or of juvenile delinquency? Oh, no. Of sin because they believe not on me. That's sin. It's in relationship to the person. Of righteousness. Ah, there they expand, of course, how to live. Oh, no. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. Of judgment. How? Well, again, a great fact. Because the prince of this world is judged. And how is he judged? He's already told them in chapter 12. It is by his crucifixion. He says, now is the prince of this world cast out. So you see, the work of the Holy Spirit in convincing of sin and righteousness and of judgment is entirely in terms of our Lord's own person. And we must never forget this. We must never consider his work in conviction even and convincing of sin apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you get it again in verses 14 and 15. Listen to this. He shall glorify me, not himself. He shall glorify me, 
for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Our Lord tells us beforehand that the work of the Holy Spirit is not to call attention to himself or to glorify himself or certain phenomena and experiences. No, no, he shall glorify me, he shall take of mine and teach them to you. The Holy Ghost is a witness of these things. What are these things? What is it the Holy Ghost witnesses unto? Well, you can divide it up, can't you? The person of the Lord, the facts concerning him, and the message of salvation resulting from those facts. Here's Peter's perfect summary of it all. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Now, that's not a reference to the resurrection, you know. That comes later. When he means raised up Jesus, he means the whole fact of the incarnation and the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Ghost witnesses to that. The business of the Holy Ghost is to display the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall glorify me. So, you see, the Apostle Paul is so right when he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, No man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. What the Holy Ghost does is to teach us that Jesus is the Lord. The Holy Ghost has been sent that the world may know about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you see, you don't look at him, he wants you to look at the other. He points you there. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, you won't be looking at him. You'll be looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, this blessed person. God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, he's a prince. He's a savior. Prince. Peter's already described him in chapter 3 as the prince of life, which means the author of life. He's the author of life. He is the leader of salvation. The son of God. The whole mystery of the incarnation, his extraordinary life, the Holy Ghost teaches us about that, opens our eyes to that, enables us to see. He witnesses to that, always the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, as I say, the facts, of course, about his life and his death and his resurrection, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. The death, the meaning of that death, Without the Holy Ghost, no man understands that death. Paul tells the Corinthians, you're making the cross of Christ of none effect with your philosophy. Yet only the Holy Ghost who exposes the meaning of the death upon the cross. What else? Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and savior. There's your resurrection. There's your ascension. There is the heavenly session at the right hand of God. God exalting him. It's all. You see, as Paul puts it in that great passage in Philippians 2, humbled himself even to the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, and so on. Now here are the great facts of his life and his death and his resurrection. And then the other thing he adds is this. For to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In other words, the business of the Holy Ghost is first and foremost to give us 
the facts and the truth concerning the person, all that he did, all that happened to him, and then the meaning of all that. Repentance, salvation in his name, he and he alone can give this. You see, it's all a repetition of what our Lord himself had prophesied. Listen to him in the last chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, where just before his ascension, he opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. There you see it is once more. The person, the facts, and the message concerning him. Repentance and belief of the truth. Now this, I say, is the work and the business and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask a final question. How does he do this? How does he bear this witness and this testimony? That's what he is. How does he do it? Well, here are some headings for you to work out. He does it by his very coming. What happened on the day of Pentecost is a witness and a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth about him. How? Well, in this way. He had promised that he would come. Do you know that the whole case for the deity of Christ, in a sense, is suspended upon this fact? He had solemnly told them, It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I go away, I will send him unto you. Categorically. I will not leave you orphans. I will not leave you alone. He, when he is come, he told them deliberately, not many days hence, he said, you stay here where you are, not many days hence, you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. And they were. So the very coming of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost is a witness to the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. What else? Well, the external signs, of course. The tongues of fire the speaking with other languages, the miracles. These are all absolute proofs. And you notice the way in which the apostles always use that? Do you remember Peter and John healing that lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple? And then there was the great commotion, and the authorities come and say, what's the meaning of this? And the people were almost worshipping Peter and John. And Peter and John turn on them and say, why looking on us? As if our own power or sanctity, we had given this man power to walk. And then what does he go on to say? Does he go on to say, now, you know, we're able to do this because we've been baptized with the Holy Ghost. That isn't what he said at all. He refers them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to his words. He says, why look ye on us? Why marvel ye at this or look ye so earnestly on us? As though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. You killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. You see, they don't talk about the Holy Ghost, they talk about Jesus. The Holy Ghost always witnesses to him. All the miracles and the signs, they all point to him, not to the Holy Ghost, nor to themselves. Always the glorification of Jesus. And how else does he do it? 
Well, he does it, of course, in the individual, his work in the individual. What is conviction of sin but a part of this? The Holy Spirit bringing us to see our need of Christ. Conviction. Then illumination. No man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. No man will understand, I say, the meaning of his life, his death, his resurrection, justification by faith only, except by the Holy Ghost. Illumination. The understanding, the unction, the anointing of the Holy One in the mind. It's the work of the Spirit, but all along in terms of Jesus Christ. Sin is not to recognize him and to reject him and to try to live without him. And then illumination, he's the Savior. Repentance and faith, he gives forgiveness of sins. What else? He gives us assurance. Look at the assurance given to Peter and the rest. Look at the joy that was given them. And it's joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's joy in our relationship to him and in what he's going to do for us yet. Assurance of salvation, certainty and joy. And then there's mighty unction and power in preaching. Look at Peter on the day of Pentecost. Standing up against the authorities and that gainsaying mob. And preaching with a holy boldness until they're convicted and cry out in agony saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's what happens, I say, in every great period of revival. The power, the unction, the authority of the Holy Ghost. And what's he doing? Witnessing to this Jesus and the truth concerning him. And so my last item in my list is revivals. Every revival is the Holy Ghost witnessing in power anew and afresh. To these things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. There's never been a revival, but that they've always been singing about the death and about the blood. Oh yes, they sing about him, the Christ who loved us, who died for our sins, who's risen again for our justification, and the blood of Christ. They're the great themes of revival. Read your hymn books. Read the hymn books of the hymns written 200 years ago in England and in Wales, and the great hymns are about the person of the Lord Jesus, lover of my soul, Christ, O oh thou, O oh Christ, art all I want. They're all about him, the Holy Spirit, inspiring men to see him, his person, his beauty, his glory, his work, and all that he does. That's how the Holy Spirit bears his witness. So I end by asking my question again. Is he thus witnessing to you? Would you like to know whether you have received the Holy Ghost or not? Here's the simple test. I don't care whether you've had visions or not. I don't care whether you've seen your room filled with a ball of fire or not. I don't care whether you've trembled or not. I don't care whether you've heard strange voices or not. What I ask you is this. Is the Lord Jesus Christ everything to you? Do you know him as the Son of God, as the Lord of glory? Do you know him as your personal Savior and Redeemer? Have you felt the power of his blood? Do you know anything about the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection? My friend, you can tell very easily whether the Holy Ghost is in you or not, if the Holy Ghost is in you. Well then, Jesus Christ is precious to you. 
It's what you say about him that matters, not what you say about your experiences and phenomena. He always glorifies him. These things, Prince, Savior, Redeemer, Lord, the one whom you've seen and whom you love and for whose sake you're ready to leave everything, that's the test of the Spirit. And when a man is filled with the Spirit, nothing matters to him except this blessed Lord, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and always live to his glory. Is he witnessing to these things in you? Would you have him do so? Well, here is the way. And so is the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. Obey him. Repent. Believe on him. Follow him. Don't stop at intellectual belief. Follow him. Obey him. Put into practice what he taught. Go after him. Deny yourself. Take up the cross. Follow him. God hath given the Holy Ghost to them that obey him. So if you want this blessed witness, if you want to know something of the experience of Pentecost, that's the way. Believe on him. Follow him. Plead with him to fill you with his spirit and to manifest himself to you through this blessed witness. Thank God for this word. You and I can then become witnesses of these things. We'll see and understand the word and the spirit will bear witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.